you have a copy of God's Word, turn please to Ephesians 1. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the first chapter. I mentioned just with this seminary teaching this week and next week to lighten the load a little. Uh, just going, asking the Lord what to preach, something I've preached before, going back and reviewing. And tonight we're in Ephesians 1, tremendous text that is here in the heart of this. powerful chapter. I'm going to read the opening 14 verses, Ephesians 1. Let us all hear the word of the Lord. Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him, who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, under the praise of His glory. Amen. We'll end the reading at the 14th verse. I trust that you understand this to be the very Word of God. It is not to be read in vain or some empty practice, but you're hearing from God Himself. So receive it as such, and may we believe what it says and the people of God said, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us as we come to Thy Word. This is Thy Word. 
It's unique. All their books are dead, but thy book is living. Cause it to live in our hearts. And should there be one here that does not know its life-giving power, we pray that it may come with power to such this evening. Advance thy cause, may thy kingdom come. And even as we stated, not only here, but in other places, we cry that thou wilt bless thy church. Come, O God, hear us and be with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you will know, due to your familiarity with Paul's epistles, that once he begins his letters, he often gives an expression of thanksgiving in relation to the believers that he is addressing. He says how thankful he is towards them and what God has done in their lives. You find this when he writes to Rome in 1 Corinthians as well, Philippians, Colossians. He addresses them in this way where he is showing expression of thanks for what has been accomplished in their midst. Here, however, it's different. We have an extended eulogy of sorts where the apostle uses expression of praise to God before he gets to any expression of thanksgiving for those that he is addressing. It's called a, a brach, I think is the Hebrew term for it. You have some short ones in the Old Testament. For example, whenever Melchizedek comes to Abram and he stands before him, we're told that he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. It's an expression of, of eulogy, of praise toward God. Well, Paul does the same here. He bursts forth with praises. Once he has given the initial introduction that is common to most of his epistles, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father. Before any thanksgiving expressed towards those in Ephesus, he just bursts forth, as I say, into this expression of praise to God for what he has done. And you can see some of the reasons why. Verse 4, it's because of their election. Verse 5, because of adoption. Again, there's expression of thanks for His will and His grace and redemption and wisdom and the mystery of how He has brought in the fullness of times gathering into one Jew and Gentile together. He blesses God for these things. And then, verse 15, you see Him carrying on as normal. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. <laughs> he gets to what He normally does, but you have this long eulogy of praise. Well, I don't know what was going through His mind, but certainly there was this sense of joy that was filling His heart. You can't write this without feeling a sense of joy. Because he had spent, I don't know, maybe this is part of the reason, he had spent a long time there. He was very much acquainted with these people, three years or so of ministry in Ephesus. In fact, when you go through the New Testament relative to other churches, there's a huge emphasis on the church at Ephesus. You have the historical account of the planting of the church in Acts. 
You have him again in Acts 20 going and standing and meeting with the Ephesian elders as well. You have the epistle that we have here. It comes up again in the letter to the churches in Revelation, in Revelation 2, where constantly then you have this church coming to the fore. They were significant. God had raised them up in a key city to have significance and influence in their region and beyond. And even you could add also as well, Timothy. Timothy also was addressed in First and Second Timothy. And when he's being addressed by Paul, he's being addressed as the pastor in Ephesus, or at least one of them ministering there at that time. So there's much emphasis placed on this people and upon this church. The apostle has a love to see that his labor would not be in vain, that this church might continue. And you have this epistle given to the general church. You have his exhortation, a famous language he uttered, I mentioned already in Acts 20, verse 28, where he says to the elders, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. This is the work. Feeding the church. He tells the elders, make sure you're doing this. And this is what he's doing through the epistle. And then when he writes to Timothy, what's he doing? He's equipping Timothy to feed the church, exhorting him to continue to be instant in season, out of season. If they'll hear you, they don't hear you. Timothy, keep going on. Keep feeding, keep, preach the word. Don't try to entertain. Don't try to tickle their ears. Give them the word. Well, having been so blessed, encouraged and equipped through Paul's ministry, and then later the ministry of Timothy, this church stood in a great position. And they knew their doctrine. When you read the account of Christ addressing them, there's no issue with doctrine. These people are standing for the truth. Their issue, of course, is that they have left their first love. There was a diminishing of their love for the Lord. But tonight, I want us to focus on verse 7 of Ephesians 1, where we have this praise or grounds for praise in the language of, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. What Paul says in this first chapter, this expression of blessing is not to be taken away from or disconnected from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because of union with Christ. It's because of what the Lord Jesus has accomplished that you find all these things happening. All these blessings, being blessed with spiritual blessings, is all because of what Christ has purchased. And so it is when you come to this verse as well. What it is promising what it is saying that the believer possesses is because we are in Christ. If you are not in Christ, if you are not saved, then this is a verse that you need to pay attention to for your encouragement. It is telling you what you need most of all. The Bible addresses many, many things, many things. But here it is addressing the forgiveness of sins knowing that your sins are all forgiven, washed away, paid in full. Does that sound good to you? Sounds good to me. 
It's been over 20 years of singing hymns and psalms that express forgiveness, rejoicing in forgiveness, and I never get tired of it. And neither should you. Forgiven. Forgiven. When your time comes, should you be given a deathbed and permitted to have those contemplative moments before you pass into eternity, you will not be dwelling on all your accomplishments. Your mind will be going back to basic things. You'll be just rejoicing in the fact you're forgiven. You're forgiven. So tonight, let's look at this verse, Ephesians 1, 7. Redemption through the blood. Redemption through the blood. As we consider this, note with me first of all, the plight of men implied. There is the plight of men implied, in whom we have redemption. Redemption. The word implies something needs to happen to men, and something has happened in the lives of those in this church. The apostle is addressing Christians who have known what it is to experience what we might term the saving grace of God. They have a personal testimony regarding it. They can declare. And if you went around the church and you asked them, what's your story? They could tell you, here's where I was. Here's where Christ found me. Here's what He has forgiven me. And here's what He has done for me. I have been redeemed. Redemption. There's a distinction between those who have been redeemed and those who have not. There has to be an occasion when you come from darkness to light, when you experience conversion, when salvation becomes yours. You see it in verse 13. The apostle writes to them, he knows they've had this conversion experience. Verse 13 of chapter 1, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth. What happened? Paul goes to Ephesus. He preaches the Word of God. He preaches the gospel. That is to say, the good news. What's the good news? It's not what you can do. It's about what God has done in Jesus Christ. And he goes heralding this, announcing this, proclaiming this, declaring it. Good news for the Ephesians. And some of them trusted. They trusted. They turned from their sins and they trusted. In whom ye also trusted. After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. If you are not in the place where you know you have trusted, then I am saying to you that has to happen. There has to be the experience where you come from, I'm not trusting, now I do trust. I trust not that you're working, not that you're trying to build up credibility with God, but you're trusting. Trusting. This is the only thing that we can do as sinners. And this is how we possess and receive the experience of redemption. The word redemption, by that word I mean the deliverance, listen, the deliverance of a soul from the state of sin into a state of salvation, right? So you're in a state of sin, to a state of salvation by the means and merit of the ransom paid by Christ on the sinner's behalf. It's all outside of yourself. It's nothing to do with you whatsoever. It's all to do with the Lord Jesus Christ, the means and merit of the ransom paid by Christ. 
on the sinner's behalf. Now, in relation to this, we have a couple of things I want us to consider because part of our problem, part of what we're facing with this is the realization that, I think, is there a car alarm? Is that what's going on? Yeah. Don't worry. Someone will fix it or sort it or do something with it. I was figuring that I could hear something. I was like, I don't know what that is. And then I realized what it was. So, this, the reason for redemption is, at least for our purposes tonight, I want you to see with me two things. That man is under the dominion of Satan and he is under the dominion of the flesh. The dominion of Satan and the dominion of the flesh. So these people that have trusted and have come into this experience, they weren't always like that. Now, I've said that already, but look at chapter 2. Chapter 2, Ephesians 2. Now, listen carefully what Paul says. You hath he quickened or made alive, brought you to life. There's been this enlivening experience who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So you see, in verse 2, having dealt with this fact that this, as I address you, I know where you were. I know where you were. When I walked into Ephesus and I declared the gospel to you, you were dead. You were spiritually dead. You were looking to Diana of the Ephesians or some other false god or deity or trusting in yourself in some fashion. You were dead. You had no spiritual life and you were brought to life. In time past, you walked in the way that people walk in this world, lost, undone, unsaved, unredeemed, according to the prince of the power of the air. You're being led by this powerful force, this prince who governs and seeks to blind the minds of them that believe not. In other words, as if it wasn't bad enough that you're dead in your sins, there's a force endeavoring to keep you dead in your sins actively keep you, like a man who sees a corpse in a grave and isn't satisfied that they're in the grave, but keeps mounting soil on top of it and stands there keeping to make sure he never gets out, does everything to prevent any escape. Satan is doing that. You're dead. You're a corpse. It would appear that there's no hope for you anyway, but there's this force that is endeavoring to keep you in that condition. It wants to keep you bound, keep you dead, keep you deceived. This is what Satan does. Now, you might remember when God made man, he blessed man. And he gave him dominion over the creatures. Had this exalted position to have dominion in this world. And as man is put in that position, it was of great responsibility. And you have that occasion of the temptation that comes into the garden when Adam and Eve are deceived and they fall, immediately their dominion was greatly hindered. They allowed another force of authority to come in or claiming authority to rob them 
of the power they needed to fulfill their commission. And Adam and Eve were to eat not just the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but they were to eat the bitter experience of the curse. Sometimes talk about dysfunctional families, don't we? I come from a dysfunctional family. There's never been anything but dysfunctional families. Every family is dysfunctional since the fall. Now I know we can, you can talk in terms of degrees, but that's what you're dealing with. You're, ter- you're dealing in terms of degrees. You're not saying that one's dysfunctional and another is not. Every family is dysfunctional. So, I mean, just let me say that to the church. Embrace it. Right? Those of us who are God's people. Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. And they didn't have to worry about the influence of social media, what the internet might do and put before their eyes, what they might see if they were to get onto Snapchat and Instagram and TikTok and YouTube and all the rest of it. That wasn't there. It wasn't a school system that might pour in garbage into their minds. It wasn't there. And all the other things we fear, we imagine that we need to keep our children away from all of the, these things, and that will give us success. Now, I'm not for putting children into da- dangerous and precarious places, don't get me wrong, or putting sin in front of them or giving them free access to things that will, will help ruin their souls. My point is this, that there was none of that that you think is the major issue, it wasn't there. The major issue was in their hearts. Adam and Eve, by their rebellion against God, God had spawned those who had all wickedness and seed form in their hearts, manifested through their nature, Parents, make it clear in your own mind. For every one of your children, it's not about what you can keep them away from merely. You need to pray down a miracle into the life of every one of your children. You need to pray down a miracle. Satan comes in, finds what he can lay hold upon, and there's all there are many handles for him to grasp in the heart of man who's dead by nature. And he seeks to gain dominion, maintain dominion over the souls of men, destroy them. And the only hope is the gospel, the good news. It's the only thing that can break us power and the only thing that can change our hearts and transform our lives. A message of deliverance that can restore in us what has been lost. In fact, this is somewhat brought forth in the fourth chapter if you go to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. He speaks here of, again, maybe we should look from verse 17. Ephesians 4.17, this I say therefore, 
and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. You've been separated from this. You're not in this world anymore. Don't go back or live that way. There's to be a distinction among the people of God. They're to evidence the transforming influence of the gospel. What are they like? What are these unregenerate, unconverted, unredeemed souls like? Verse 18, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. This is where men are without Christ. Verse 20, but ye have not so learned Christ. You haven't. You haven't learned this. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Did you hear from Christ? That he has come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. That you might be free. Free indeed. Then he says that you put off concerning the former conversation or behavior, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created. Here you have a creative act. It's going back to the original intention. God again is doing something as he made man in holiness. He is doing it again in salvation, in redemption, in conversion, in what happens in the soul by the work of the Spirit of God, created in righteousness and true holiness. Man getting back what has been lost in part by the work of the Spirit of God. So man is under the dominion of Satan, and his only hope is in Jesus Christ, to be redeemed from that power, to be set free from that power. You're in this prison house, and you can't get yourself free. You can't be bailed out by your own effort. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can set you free. And that's what he came to do. So man is under the dominion of Satan, but man is under the dominion of the flesh. Again, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 3, where we read, it's not just this prince of the power of the air. Verse 3, among whom also we had our conversation or our behavior in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. The dominion of the flesh. My friend, the problem isn't just out there, and it's not just satanic power and influence. It's in you. Christ comes not to just protect you from what's out there and Satan's attack. That's, that's not enough. He needs to do something in you. Change you. Go to Romans 6. 
Romans 6. As you see, this a little more in terms of the, the battle against our flesh, the dominion of the flesh, the power of the flesh, the authority that the flesh seeks to wield over us. Read verse 12, Romans 6, 12, just begin there. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. Now, he's speaking to Christians. So, if you're not a Christian, you, you have no power to do this. But it's just helping you to see that this is, a, this is a fight where sin tries to reign in your mortal body and you obey or you're tempted to obey with the lusts thereof. Verse 16, skip down to verse 16. Know ye not, do you not know this? That to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey... His servants ye are to whom ye obey. That makes sense. You yield yourself to obey one. You're obviously a servant of that. Whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin. But ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Now let me just stop. That's what you need to do. You need to obey from the heart. Obeying the gospel. Responding to the gospel. Believing with all your might. If you don't do this, you can't enjoy the freedom and the blessings. Verse 18, being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? But the end of those things is death. Just point out, we live in a time where it's almost said, you're, you should never feel any shame anymore. Well, we should. We should feel shame. In fact, it's a gift from God. Shame can, it can be manipulated and can be wrong. Yes, it can. But it's not wrong entirely. There ought to be a feeling of shame regarding our rebellion against God. The end of those things is death, but now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's the point? The point is this. The flesh is a problem. It functions in an authoritative capacity over you. It endeavors to crush you. It endeavors to do its own thing. Of course, when you're unconverted, you're right along with it. You're okay with all desires. But redemption, that's what you need. You need to be bought, bought, bought by the gospel, bought through the merit of Christ, bought so that you can be set free. This is what the gospel promises to you. So have you been emancipated? Have you delivered? This is what Christ does. Men are fettered, chained, what is their hope? The only hope is Jesus Christ. This is the plight of men. It's implied by the word. Go back to Ephesians 1. It's implied by the word redemption. They need to be purchased, to be bought, to be delivered, to be set free. So I hope you get that. I hope, I hope that's established before we move on. You understand this. By nature, I was born into this world. I didn't get sidetracked merely at some point in my teens or adulthood 
you were, you were sidetracked from the get-go, from the beginning. You're born in sin. The problem is inherent in you and to you. And so you need to have this, this experience. Again, I refer to it, the Ephesians. Paul says, in whom you've trusted, after that you believed. So this experience must be yours as well. Secondly, the price for men that was paid. The price for men that was paid. Not only the plight of men implied, but the price for men that was paid. Because, again, look at verse 7 of chapter 1. In whom we have redemption through his blood. Note what he is not saying. This change, this being purchased, this being bought, this transformation is not through the church. It's not through the authority of the church. It's not through your attendance at church. It's not through anything that happens at church. It's not through anything you can do. It's not through any effort of your own. Again, look at chapter 2. Go, go to chapter 2. Verse 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith. By grace are ye saved through faith. Is that clear enough? It should be. This, this redemption, this experience of deliverance and salvation, it is by grace, not by effort, not by works. It's by grace, through faith. That is, you believe. You believe that Christ did it for you. You believe that they're coming into this world, living a life of righteousness, going to the cross, dying on Calvary's middle tree, bearing sin upon his own body, suffering there. He was doing it for the guilty, even for you and for me. And you believe it. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Here's the issue. If you contribute something, God can't get glory for that. You get glory for it. You can say, I did that. I went to Jesus. I talked him into coming to me. I convinced him that I was an eligible candidate for his salvation. I put myself in a position where he might condescend because I, I cleaned up my life or I tried to turn it around or I did something else to convince him. None of that. When you do that, you rob the glory of the gospel. You take it away. You make it something that you have done in conjunction with the Lord Jesus. But salvation is all of God. Christ, Christ, and Christ alone gets glory for salvation. And we go to heaven the only utterances out of our mouth are going to attribute His work and not our own. And even when we are credited and rewarded for the labors that we have done in His name and receive crowns for our faithfulness to His cause, we'll cast them down freely and say, it was by grace. It's all Him. Galatians 2 end of that powerful 
verse, a very clear verse, Galatians 2.21. The apostle writes there, I do not frustrate. It's not a word we would use in this sense, but the idea is to disregard or nullify. I don't nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. I'm not going to take away from what it is about. If righteousness come by the law, Christ is dead in vain. If I can do something that might merit God's favor, there's no need for God to take flesh. There's no need for the Son of God to come into the world. There's no need for all that transpires in his life, in his sufferings, in his agony, in his death. But Christ did not die in vain. It is the most victorious event in all of human history. In triumph, he faces that curse that came on humanity and the world in triumph. He goes there, he submits himself to it, he willingly traverses that journey that takes him to Calvary. And he is nailed to that cross, and at any moment he could have called a legion of angels to come and devastate the entire city and set him free. There are other ways he could have been liberated or prevented from that, but he goes there, oh, he goes there, understand it, he goes there motivated by divine love and the divine will and the recognition that this is the only way. Everyone perishes if he does not go to the cross. John Newton, well known for his testimony and his life and the transformation that occurred to this man who was involved in slave trade. Of course, well known, perhaps most well known for the hymn Amazing Grace. He wrote other poetry, of course, as well, one of which goes like this. You see this man, this man has a, he has a dark past, a dark past. And in that dark past, there are all sorts of things he can't undo. What has been done has been done. What he has done to lives, how he has impacted men, he can't undo it. This like a cloud, potentially will follow him the rest of his life. But he writes, I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood who fixed his loving eyes on me as near his cross I stood. My conscience felt and owned my guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had shed and helped to nail him there. 
a second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou mayst live. Oh, can it be upon a tree the Savior died for me. My soul is thrilled, my heart is filled to think he died for me. Redemption through his blood. So that a man with the darkest past can find freedom and liberty for his conscience. We are told plainly in the Levitical law, it is the blood that maketh atonement for the soul. It is underlined in Hebrews, without shedding of blood is no remission. You can't deal with your past except through the blood of Christ. Now you can deal with your past in various ways. And you can get counseling and there's strategies and ways you might deal with it that might help you here and now, but it won't help you on the judgment. It is through the shedding of Christ's blood there is remission. No, maybe Christian, you need to remember this because we are not above falling into great sin, are we? And having cast our all on Christ and given our lives to Him, we still at times find that sin clings we lack the power and at times even the will to gain victory over it. And so you need to be reminded again, it's redemption through his blood. That's what gives you hope, Christian. Redemption through his blood. This is where you stay for the rest of your life. And then you're going to go to heaven. <laughs> you're going to join with an innumerable multitude who make this the anthem of heaven's courts singing about the blood of the Lamb. Finally, the promise for men offered, the promise for men offered is the forgiveness of sins. Redemptions through his blood, Christ's death, shedding of his blood, brings about the forgiveness of sins. <sighs> I feel like I don't need to say anymore. I mean, what can you add to this? I can't improve on this. Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. True it was when David wrote in Psalm 103, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, 
nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Gone. He's removed our transgressions from us. This is forgiveness. So Peter stands, preaches, preaches his heart out before the Jews in Jerusalem and calls them, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. He's telling them, Turn away. Turn away from your religion. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your self-righteousness. Turn away from everything. Look on to Christ. That your sins may be blotted out. Just, well, all of them? Yes, all of them. Blotted out. Gone. Do you have this, do you? Do you have this? I look across your faces. may be the preacher's greatest sorrow on that day when he realizes that some who sat before him ignored the message. Are you washed? Are you clean? Are you forgiven? Are you pardoned? Do you have peace with God? Do you have it? Do you know it? Again, the psalmist, Psalm 38. He says in verse 4, Mine iniquities are gone over mine head. As a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. There's a place to be. My iniquities are gone over mine head. They can crush me. There's no relief. Preacher, if you only knew what I have done, if you only understood the things I have been party to, if I believed that there was a sin that you could name that couldn't be forgiven. I would not waste my time standing before you trying to communicate hope. The joy of my calling is that I am absolutely confident that every sin that can be named to whatever degree it may be expressed and has been practiced, can be washed away in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins. That psalmist who said his iniquities are gone over his head as a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. Later in the same psalm, he says, I will declare mine iniquity. I will be sorry for my sin. 
I will declare it. That sounds like John, doesn't it? When John says in 1 John 1, if you will confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all, all, just let that get into your mind, all your trespasses can all be gone in a moment. The forgiveness of sins, of all sins. Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Oh, what sweetness there is in this. He goes on to say, according to the riches of his grace. It's like he's saying, this, this, you can't squeeze out all that is promised and offered here. You can't like drain it. The riches of his grace is language of abundance. It's saying that, what, if I, can I keep coming? Is re this redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, is it still available for me tomorrow? Is it there for me the next day when I fall into sin again? God forbid, should I do something awful in the future? Will it be there for me? The riches of his grace. The riches of his grace. God sent his son, the most precious thing that could be sent. And he came into this world to live and to die and to rise again so that we in all of our plight and doubt might be sure that the price paid is sufficient. The work done is enough. So that the covenant promise that he might be our God and we would be his people could not be in jeopardy because what Christ has done is enough can't be threatened. The riches of his grace. What sacred fountain yonder springs up from the throne of God and all new covenant blessings brings tis Jesus' precious blood. What mighty sum paid all my debt when I a bondman stood and has my soul at freedom set tis Jesus' precious blood. What stream is that which sweeps away my sins just like a flood, nor lets one guilty blemish stay? Tis Jesus' precious blood. What voice is that which speaks for me in heaven's high court for good, and from the curse has made me free? Tis Jesus' precious blood. Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And this is what I pray for you. Not one would be lost. It's right there. It's there. It's not far away from you. It doesn't have to be in the future sometime when you feel like you're, you're ready. What matters is, is he ready? He is ready. He's always ready to receive. To forgive. To pardon, to transform, to change. And that wretch Balaam, <laughs> he understood it, didn't he? Let me die the death of the righteous. Let my last end be like his. Oh, how he hoped for it. We understood a distinction, a difference. For those who are truly the Lord's.
Do you have it? Let me reword that. Do you have the one who provides it? It's not an it, it's an him. It's through Christ these blessings come. Again, you read Ephesians 1 and all these blessings that are bursting forth from Paul, they're all tied into being in Christ. You ask, what's the direction, preacher? How do I get there? It's Christ. How do I find him? He's there. He's here. He's found in the promises that he gives. You're saying, I can be saved tonight? Yes, I can be saved right here. A new start, a new beginning, a new life. May the Lord help you. Let's bow together in prayer. The Lord is always here. And in His presence you may assure yourself to be. The question is, will you obey His Word? Will you come to Christ? The Lord Jesus stands ready to save you. If there remains any question in your mind, any doubt, perhaps some of you children, maybe some of you older, still struggling with one thing or another, if I can help you, I'm here, talk to me, I'll open the Word of God, answer your questions. But seeking the Lord is something you must do. And you can do it now. Won't you come? Here? No? Lord, I pray. Give deciding grace. Move upon hearts still in unbelief. Make it clear to the conscience, to the heart, thy readiness and willingness to receive and to forgive and pardon. We bless thee for thy mercy to many of us here. May we never tire of exalting the blood of the Lamb and rejoicing in its power to cleanse and to keep on cleansing. May our days be filled with much meditation on the power of the blood of Christ. And may it put us on a foundation and keep us on a platform of joyful service for our Master. Empower us in the week that lies ahead Bring your people into contact 
with the unsaved. Give us words to this perishing world. Bless our time of fellowship. Make it special because you're in our midst. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all the people of God now and evermore. Amen.